Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to continue our verse-by-verse study of the book, and we're going to finish chapter 9 today. We've just got two more verses in chapter 9, and we'll dip a little bit into chapter 10. And uh, today we're going to be talking about death and consequence. What an exciting message. What a fun thing to talk about, how popular this is. Death and consequence. Let's read the last two verses of Hebrews 9 and pray and get into it. It says in Hebrews 9, 27, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that is absolute truth. Thank you that it sets before us a standard and that it is inerrant and infallible and authoritative. And we ask that this morning you would make us open to your word. We realize that in this gathering there are Christians and non-Christians, those who have repented of their sins and those who are yet to do it. And we ask that you would speak to all of us, you'd speak to the multitudes, those of us that have already received you as Lord and Savior, that you would encourage us in our faith and in this glorious thing called the gospel, and that we would be equipped to communicate it and motivated to be involved in your mission. And for those that are here today visiting, Lord, and they have not recognized you as Lord and Savior and repented and been forgiven and received grace and mercy and newness and the gift of eternal life, we ask that you do that for them today and that you would gently and wonderfully bring them to the place where they would repent of their sins and be saved. Thank you, Jesus, that you are a Savior. Thank you that you're not mad at humanity, you don't hate us, that you love us. You love us so much that you came to die on the cross. Thank you that eternity is real and you're the Lord over it and you're the sovereign judge. We wouldn't want to entrust judgment over humanity to anyone other than you, Jesus, for you alone are just and right and good. We ask that, Jesus, you be glorified in our hearts and our minds in our church and on our coastlands today. You'd become much larger. You'd rule and reign and be adored. Help me to communicate your truth now in a way that is honest and authentic and that glorifies you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we see here that it is appointed for men to die once. Dying, death. We need to talk about death. Two things we realize when we talk about death, that death is a certainty and that death is an enemy. One is obvious to you and I that death is a certainty. One might not be so obvious. Death is an enemy. It is appointed for man to die once. Everybody is going to die. That is a certainty. The only ones who will not taste death are those who are alive at the rapture of the church. And we will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord. We will be translated, transformed, glorified, and thus we shall be with the Lord forever. Christianity is the only religion in the world that offers the opportunity for some people to never die at the rapture, the coming of Jesus Christ. But that's beside the point. The point is, generally speaking, everybody is going to die other than those that experience the rapture. Death is a certainty. We know that. We know that empirically, by observation, we know that biblically, by revelation. But what is less obvious to some of us is that death is an enemy. Understand this now. Death is an enemy. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26 says, The last enemy that will be abolished is death. The Bible calls death an enemy. The reason that we call death an enemy is because it's unnatural. It's unnatural. 
It's common to be sure, but it is not natural, meaning it's not what God intended, meaning God made you to live. You were made to live. You were created. God took dust and made man and breathed life into him. We were made to live. That was God's purpose. Death was not God's purpose. Death was not God's plan. Life is what God intends. Death is unnatural. Death is an enemy. The reason that death is, uh, has come into humanity is because of sin. It says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. This sheds more light on why death is an enemy. It is a result of sin, rebellion against God, wrong things. Sin leads to death. The wages of sin is death. God told Adam and Eve, in the day that you do that which I told you not to do, in that day you shall surely die. And when humanity rebelled in the garden, death entered in and has been the enemy of humanity and God ever since. The good news today is that Jesus Christ conquers the enemy of death. He is the one that has defeated death. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this thing that is certain and this thing that is an enemy has been defeated by this person named Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, 14 and 15 speaks of it. Excuse me, Hebrews 2. It says, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Satan wants to keep humanity in bondage to fear, in subjection to fear. Jesus Christ wants to set humanity free by offering new life and eternal life through conquering sin, death, and devil on the cross. And that is what Jesus has done. John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, Satan, the thief, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I like the way the New Living Translation says it. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. That's what's available to us in Jesus Christ, both in this life and the life to come. Life that is rich and satisfying. You must choose whom you will follow. And there are two options, the Bible says. Jesus Christ or Satan. I know that you would like to be spiritual Switzerland, in the middle, neutral, not taking sides, but God doesn't allow it. There are two fishermen and you're on one of the two hooks. You're either hooked by Satan or you're hooked by Jesus Christ. And you need to determine which bait you will take today. The bait of Satan and the lie which leads to death or the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, which leads to life, that he died a substitutionary death on the cross for my sins and for your sins, and that he rose from the dead to conquer sin, death, and the devil, and ascended to the right hand of the Father to rule and reign and offer us life. Which will you choose? You must choose. Death is a certainty, and death is an enemy. But there is life beyond the grave in Jesus Christ, and death has been defeated by Jesus Christ. 
Now, another thing that we need to realize from our text, it says it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. So death and judgment. Death is a certainty and an enemy. Judgment is a certainty and a necessity. Judgment is a certainty and a necessity. Judgment is a certainty simply because the Bible says so. The Bible says it's appointed for men to die once, and then the judgment comes. Call me naive, but I believe it. I believe what the Bible says. I know that there are competing ideologies, such as those that would say, well, there's actually reincarnation and karma, and you have several different lives over and over again, and you get to try to work it off and work it out and get it right. Hey, dude, I don't know about you, but I've made a big enough mess with one life. I don't need another one to screw up. <laughs> Sounds a lot better to me that I'm going to be delivered and rescued and given new life by Jesus Christ than to try to be perfect again. I'm not pulling it off this time. I know that there are competing ideologies, such as when you die, you will be worm food, that you will simply rot in the casket or wherever they put you, and there's no life beyond the grave. But the Bible doesn't say that because, you see, Jesus Christ is the Lord of heaven and earth. He draped himself in humanity, he tasted death for you and I, and he rose from the dead conquering death. Therefore, Jesus Christ is the authority when it comes to death and the life after death. He is the authority. He has integrity and right reputation. In all of history, who else that claims to know and have the power over what happens after the grave has been able to cause the blind to see? Who else in all of history has made the lame to walk? Who else has cleansed the lepers? Who else has raised the dead? Who else has fed the multitudes? Who else walked on the water? Who else has calmed the storms? Who else offered to die for you? And who else rose from the dead but Jesus Christ? Therefore, what he has to say about death and judgment and the life after is absolutely authoritative. And Jesus says this in John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death into life. That is, Jesus said that by believing in his finished work on the cross and repenting of our sins, we can avoid being judged for our sins. Having just learned that judgment is a certainty and a necessity, we can avoid being judged for our sins if we will accept by faith the fact that Jesus was judged on our behalf on the cross. And when we believe that, we pass out of death into eternal life and we avoid judgment for our sins. Judgment, again, is a certainty because the Bible says so. And I want to tell you guys this morning that you can trust your Bible. You can trust the Word of God. The Bible is a trustworthy source. The Bible is the anvil on which the critics' hammers have long since worn themselves out. For thousands of years, about 2,000 now, the critics have wielded their hammers and pounded on the Bible, but it proves to be the anvil that wears the hammer out. It was Voltaire that died, that Frenchman atheist that died in 1778. And when he was dying, he declared, a hundred years from now, Christianity will be dead and there'll be no more Bibles. It is ironic that 50 years later, the Geneva Bible Society was in his house using his printing press to print thousands of Bibles. Voltaire was not the authority. The Bible is the authority. 
Well, when we speak about Scripture being authoritative and the validity of Scripture, it helps us to understand the continuity of the Bible. The continuity of the Bible. That it has one main message, one main story. The message of Jesus Christ and the story of the redemption of man. And it's amazing that it has that internal consistency, seeing that it has such diversity in those who were involved in its writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is written over a period of 1,500 years. It was written on three different continents. It's composed of 66 different books and was written by over 40 different authors from every walk of life by kings, military leaders, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, tax collectors, poets, musicians, statesmen, scholars, and shepherds. For example, Moses, who wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books, was a political leader and a judge trained in the universities of Egypt. David, who wrote the Psalms, was a king, a poet, a musician, a shepherd, and a warrior. Amos was a herdsman. Joshua was a military general. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to a pagan king. Daniel was a prime minister in Babylon. Solomon was a king and a philosopher. Luke was a physician and a historian. Peter was a fisherman. Matthew was a tax collector. Paul was a rabbi. And Mark was Peter's secretary. <laughs> and all of these came under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit from these diverse backgrounds and walks of life to be used by God to communicate one consistent message. That humanity is in error, but God is a lover and he saves people through the cross of Jesus Christ. The Bible that you have in front of you is not only written on three different continents, but in three different languages. It covers hundreds of different topics, and it contains a variety of different literary styles. History, poetry, didactic, parable, allegory, apocalyptic, epic, romance, personal correspondence, memoirs, satire, biography, autobiography, law, and prophecy. And yet one united message. It's written from several different perspectives. The perspective of a shepherd by David in Psalm 23. A prophetic perspective in the book of Kings. A priestly perspective in the book of Chronicles. A historical perspective in Luke and Acts. A pastoral perspective in the epistles of Paul. And these authors were not in collusion. They were in isolation from one another. Ezekiel and John wrote in exile. Esther wrote from foreign lands. Hebrews is written in the east, but 2 Timothy was written in Rome. Moses wrote in the wilderness. Jeremiah wrote in a dungeon. Daniel wrote on a hillside and in a palace. Paul wrote in prison, and Luke wrote while traveling. We have this tremendous diversity and yet an unbelievable unity. There is continuity in a central theme, the person of Jesus Christ with a single unfolding drama, the story of redemption. Now, it is just so much foolishness to think that this is a man-made book. It just defies logic and the realities of possibility. This is God's Word. This is God's Word. And when God's Word says that it's appointed for man to die once and then judgment, you better believe there's a judgment. I don't care what the competing ideologies and philosophies or what your belief system is, the Bible says you will be judged for your sins. Now, judgment is not only a certainty, it is a necessity. What do you mean? What do I mean? Here's what I mean. Judgment is a necessity because God is just and holy. Judgment is a necessity because God is just and holy. God is holy. Therefore, sin offends Him. 
Get it straight, humanity. Sin offends God. All sin is against God. We must rid ourselves of this popular mantra in society that says, I'm not hurting anybody. All sin is an offense before God. All sin is against God. He is a holy God who is offended by your sin and my sin. He is also a just God. And being just, he must then deal with the offense of sin. He's just, so he's got to deal with the violation of his law that he put in place. He's just, so sinners must be punished. Sin must be dealt with. He's not your fat, happy grandpa that's going to weak an eye and say, oh, boys will be boys, and sweep it under the rug. That's not who he is. He is a just and holy God who is offended by sin that holds humanity accountable. And because he's just, because he's right, and he's not crooked, he's not perverse, he doesn't cut corners, he doesn't fudge, he doesn't sweep it under the rug, he must judge sin. He cannot turn a blind eye to it. His character forbids it. Now, we rejoice in that because we don't want the child molester to get away. We don't want the kid killer to get off scot-free. We don't want that. But we're hypocrites because many of us do want God to let us off. And that reveals that we have a double standard. You see, we like to grade on a curve. You know you do. You asked it all the time back in high school. Will this exam be graded on a curve? <laughs> you know you do. You love to be graded on a curve because we all suck. And so we love a curve. <laughs> Makes us feel better about ourselves. I suck, you suck. If we all suck together, we'll be somewhere in the middle. And that turns out to be an A. We love grading on a curve. And we want humanity to be graded on a curve. We don't want the kid killer to get off, but we think we should get off. Bad news. God doesn't grave on a curve. It's a straight scale. And at the top of that is 100%, God's standard, perfection. And you and I, we, humanity, we fall short of God's standard. The Bible says it explicitly. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned and fallen short. I know, I realize that in our minds, there's different kinds of sin. And we say, well, I'm not as bad as him, and, and she's not as bad as me, and da-da-da. Listen, that's true. You could always find somebody worse than you. Don't you feel good? But you can always find somebody better than you. Therefore, it is irrelevant it washes out. It's meaningless. Get over this idea of relativism. It is intellectual mush bag wimpiness. Makes no sense whatsoever. There is a standard. There is a scale. There are absolutes. There are laws. God made them. God gave them. God holds humanity accountable to them. Now, calm down. Speaking to myself. And let's reason together for a moment. Think about this logically. We really do count on the fact that someday there will be some sort of judgment and justice. Humanity in general really does count on this no matter what we say. Because 
we see so many atrocious evils in the world. We see so many heinous crimes. We see murders and maiming and rape and genocide and things that the human heart can barely deal with. And what helps humanity to cope is this secret expectation, this hope that someday, in the end, there will be judgment and there will be justice. Humanity needs this. We count on this just to get up in the morning that in the end, the wicked, the Hitlers of the world will be dealt with. The disconnect for much of humanity is that we don't see ourselves as wicked. It's something for everybody else. They're wicked. I'm okay. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says we're all in trouble. Yes, thou shalt not murder. We're all bummed out at the murderers. But it also says thou shalt not lie, and we're all liars. We're all guilty. We're all in trouble. We wish it was a curve, but God doesn't grade on a curve. He has a standard. We've all sinned. And after death comes judgment. And since men, in and of themselves, are not able to do away with their own sins, God's judgment demands that we pay for them. And here are the two options. Either you pay for your sins or you have a suitable substitute who will pay for them for you. Those are the only options. Someone's going to pay. God is just. Justice will be met. Someone is going to pay. Either you will pay for your sins or you need to find a suitable substitute who will pay for them for you in your place. Now that person is Jesus. Verse 28 says, So Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Notice what it says. Having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Jesus Christ bore the sins of humanity on the cross. He came the first time to deal with sin. That is why he came expressly. He said, I came to seek and save that which was lost. Luke 19.10, he said in Mark 10.45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ said that the sick need a physician. And he came seeking after sick sinners, you and I. And he came to give his life on the cross to pay my debt and your debt. The wages of sin is death, so he came to die in my place. That I might have life, that we might have life. It says it's appointed for man to die once. And so Jesus Christ has been offered once, it says in our text, in our place. Once and for all, he died. That's the only sacrifice. The only atonement that is needed for sin is the once for all death of Jesus Christ. He became a man expressly that he might pay our price because nothing that came before could. The Old Testament system, the Old Covenant, and the law was good, but it was not complete without Jesus Christ. It all pointed to Jesus Christ. That's explained in chapter 10. We'll read a few verses right now in chapter 10. Familiar ground, all these concepts we've covered in depth in our study of the book of Hebrews. So we'll just read through them, and it gives us a fuller understanding of how only Jesus satisfies the wrath of God. Verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. 
Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness, consciousness excuse me, of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Jesus comes into the world, he says, and this is a quotation from the Old Testament, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. Speaking of the incarnation. And whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, and the roll of the book it is written of me. In other words, all of Scripture is about Jesus Christ. I have come to do thy will, O God. Then he said, let's skip to verse 9 for time's sake. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do thy will. He takes away the first, that is the covenant of the law, the Mosaic law, the first covenant, in order to establish the second, the covenant of grace and forgiveness. Verse 10, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Death is one of those enemies. Satan is another one. Sin is another one. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is a covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and upon their mind and I will write them, he then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. You see, the Bible is explicit. Jesus Christ has dealt with the sins of humanity once and for all. And so the only question is, have you dealt with Jesus? He's dealt with sin, but have you dealt with him? Have you come to him and repented of your sin? And said, Jesus, I am a sinner. I have been wrong. But you are a Savior, and you are right. So I repent of my sins. Save me and forgive me. Now, if you have another belief system that is contrary to the forgiveness of sins only through the person of Jesus Christ, you need to check that. You need to ask yourself a couple things about your belief system. What does my belief system do with my sin? Because you know you got sin, bro. You know you got sin, sister. You know you do. If you got skin, you got sin. Don't fool yourself. You've got sin. So if you got some other belief system, you better ask yourself before you die, what does my philosophy, my ideology, my leader, what does it do with my sin? What does it do with your sin? Because if it doesn't make him go away, you're going to pay for him in eternity because God is just. But God is love. So he gave Jesus Christ to pay the price for your sins. And as it says there in verse 17, to do away with them. They will be remembered no more. Therefore, you will never be judged for your sins because Jesus nailed them to the cross. They've been taken away. The certificate of debt, which consisted of decrees that were hostile against us, has been removed once and for all. Jesus has paid the price, conquered sin, death, and the devil rose from the dead that we might have life. 
Now, if you have some other belief system, you need to weigh it against that before you die. And I need to say something about death because I'm a pastor and I do a lot of funerals. Very few of them were scheduled. Meaning, most funerals that I've stood and officiated at, those people didn't expect to die the day they died. Death is cruel. It's an enemy. And it comes upon too many people suddenly. Jesus has dealt with sin. Have you dealt with Jesus? You need to do it soon. I suggest that today's a good day to repent of your sins and allow Jesus Christ to forgive you. God is just. Somebody will pay for your sins. Is it you or is it Jesus? If you ask for it to be Jesus, it will be Jesus. Don't neglect that. Yes, God is just, but God is love. He draped himself in humanity and came to save you. Jesus Christ died a substitutionary death upon the cross. Now, it says also in verse 28 of Hebrews 9, that he shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. He shall appear a second time. Now, let's be honest. We believe that Jesus came the first time because it's historical fact. History speaks about someone named Jesus of Nazareth and his death upon the cross and his resurrection from the dead. There is abundant reason to believe that Jesus came the first time. We also see that Scripture prophesied that Jesus would come the first time. But Scripture also prophesies about a second coming. It says that Jesus will come again. This is sometimes harder to believe because we haven't seen it yet. No, duh. But that's where faith comes in. Faith is a hope of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1 1 says. We'll get there in a few years, Hebrews 11.1. 1. <laughs> faith is a hope of things not seen. But the Bible says that Jesus is coming again. This time without reference to sin because he dealt with sin the first time. Now, when we speak about the validity of Scripture and the second coming of Jesus Christ, it's important for us to realize that there are over 1,800 predictive prophecies in the Bible. Many of them messianic prophecies speaking about the first coming of Jesus Christ, at least 91 that were fulfilled literally in his lifetime. Let's look at a few of them, a few of the things that were prophesied and fulfilled. Next to each one of these on the PowerPoint, you'll see the Old Testament reference where it was prophesied and the New Testament one where it was fulfilled someday, sometimes thousands of years later. It was prophesied that he would be born. It was prophesied that he would have a virgin birth. The place of his birth, Bethlehem, was prophesied by the prophet Micah. His ancestry through Abraham was spoken of in Genesis. That he'd be of the house of David was mentioned in 2 Samuel. Genesis mentioned that he'd be of the tribe of Judah. Malachi said he'd be the one who would cleanse the temple. Uh, Isaiah spoke of the fact that there would be a herald of his coming, John the Baptist. Isaiah spoke of the fact that he would be anointed by the Holy Spirit and that he would preach to the poor and the brokenhearted, that he would perform miracles, that he would be rejected by his own people. The Old Testament spoke of his suffering and his death. The piercing of his hands and feet was spoken of in Psalm 22 a thousand years before Jesus Christ was ever born and before crucifixion was ever invented. The piercing of his side was mentioned in Zechariah 12.10. The casting of lots for his garments in the Psalms. That Christ would die in 33 AD by Daniel. The Christ's resurrection in the Psalms. And the ascension of Jesus Christ was spoken of in Psalm 110. 
So we have all of these prophecies, hundreds, thousands of years in advance that will fulfill literally in the personal life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, someone might say, well, that's a kawinky dink. That's a coincidence. I mean, there's been so many people that have lived, you know, and so somebody might have just been born in Bethlehem, and somebody might have just had a virgin birth, hello, and somebody might have had their hands pierced and their feet pierced and their side pierced, you know, and it might just be a coincidence. Well, mathematicians have looked at the statistical probability of this, and they have calculated that the probability of 16 predictions being fulfilled in just in one man as they were in Jesus, is 1 in 10 to the 45th power. What is 10 to the 45th power? It is 1 followed by 45 zeros. What is that number? It is a quaturodecillionth. <laughs> no, literally, that's what it is. The statistical probability of those things being fulfilled by one man is one in forty-five, one in the tenth to the forty-five power, one in quattro decillionth power. Because I like this stuff, let's say it another way. Take just eight of those prophecies concerning Jesus, cut it in half, now make it easy, give humanity the benefit of the doubt. Somebody might come along and fulfill them randomly. Let's say these eight prophecies, born in Bethlehem, preceded by a messenger, entered Jerusalem on a donkey, betrayed by a friend, sold for 30 pieces of silver. That silver was later thrown into the temple and the price was given to buy a potter's field, that that man is silent before his accusers and that he's ultimately crucified. What are the chances that someone would fulfill just eight of those randomly other than Jesus Christ? We find that the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled all eight prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power. That's a 10 followed by 17 zeros. Now, let's try to quantify that. How big is that number? One followed by 17 zeros. Remember, it's not nearly as big as a quattro decillionth. How big is it, though? If you had 10 with 17 zeros after it, if you had that many silver dollars, it would cover the state of Texas two feet deep. That many silver dollars would cover the state of Texas two feet deep. And so, listen, the odds of somebody fulfilling these prophecies in sequence is one in that number. The statistical probability of that happening by chance is the same as you going to Texas, seeing the two feet of silver dollars, taking one out, getting a Sharpie, marking an X on it, throwing it back in, stirring the whole thing up, blindfolding your little buddy and saying, now, go and pick out in one chance that one marked with a Sharpie. He would have the same chance of somebody other than Jesus Christ fulfilling these prophecies. Dude, if you aren't trusting Jesus, what are you doing? What are you doing? Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world who loves you and gave himself for you and paid your price. Who else is offering to pay your price? Not even your mommy's doing that for you. (laughs) Who else is offering to pay the price for your sins and to be judged in your place? Nobody else is offering to do that but Jesus Christ. It says that he shall come again. You can believe that. Because for every one prophecy that there is in the Bible concerning his first coming, there is at least eight concerning his second coming. He is coming again. He is coming again. 
And it says there, he shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. Meaning, he already dealt with the sin the first time. Now he's coming to bring the completion of our salvation to those who eagerly await for him. Sins have been dealt with. The only question is, have you dealt with Jesus? When he comes again, it's not a second chance. He's not going to come and die again. We read in Hebrews 10, he did it once and for all. It's going to be the completion of the salvation that you need to lay hold of by faith in this lifetime. Remembering that our salvation is in three tenses. We have been saved from the penalty of sin, past tense. We are being saved from the power of sin, present tense. And we will be saved from the presence of sin, future tense. And when Jesus comes away, comes back, he's going to do away with all this junk. And every wrong will be set right. And he will set up his kingdom, which is a righteous kingdom. And he will rule and reign on earth. And that's the time of judgment. We will be judged not for our sins. Those were judged at the cross, forgotten, done away with, can't possibly be judged for our sins. But Christians will be judged according to our faithfulness. The way in which we live for Jesus Christ in this lifetime. This will make you uncomfortable. But we will stand before Jesus and give an account for what we did with our time, our resources, and our talents. We will. Because you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. And he's a king of a kingdom. And you're members of his kingdom. And you have kingdom responsibility. And you should not shirk that kingdom responsibility. You should rather be busy about the work of the king and ready for the establishment of the kingdom. We will stand before Jesus, literally. This is not figurative. We will stand before Jesus and give an account as believers for what we've done with our time, our talent, and our resources for his glory, for his kingdom, for the fame of his name. If you're just living for yourself, you're blowing it. It's time to live for Jesus Christ. It's time to get on track. It's time to get on mission and be involved with what Jesus Christ is doing in this world. I know that right now we see a lot of horrific things and a lot of pain and suffering and death. But when Jesus comes, he's going to deal with that ultimately. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54 says, But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable. Perishable here, speaking of these bodies, these mortal bodies. Can't I get a witness to anybody that you're perishing? Yeah. I mean, is anybody's body other than mine getting funky? Yeah. Just like old cheese. I'm only 36 and I wake up in the morning and go, dang, I'm getting funky. Anybody know what I'm talking about? This is perishable. I mean, it's like milk. It's rotting. It's like cottage cheese. It's blah. But there's coming a time in the ultimate redemption at the coming of Jesus Christ when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on the immortal. Then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Because Jesus will have ultimately conquered death at that time and impart to us that newness of life and that eternal life. Now, I'm urging you, I'm speaking to you, I'm begging you with every fiber of my being not to reject Jesus. 
if you reject his free gift of salvation, then you will stand before God and be judged for your sins. I take no joy in speaking about this. I did not make this up. I didn't write this. And I don't re rejoice in this. This is what the Bible says. That if you reject Jesus Christ in this lifetime, you will spend eternity in hell. I know we like to spiritualize that. I know we like to make it something it's not. But the Bible says it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth and outer darkness where there's a worm that consumes the flesh that never dies. I have no idea what that means, but that sounds crappy. <laughs> and unless you accept the forgiveness of Jesus Christ through the cross and the fact that he paid your price for your sins, then you will have to go it alone in the day of judgment when you die or he comes, whichever comes first. And if you reject Jesus, you better be ready because that's bad. I take no pleasure in reading this, but here's what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, that is hell, this is called the second death. If you reject eternal life, you will experience something called the second death, as if one wasn't bad enough. It's the lake of fire, verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. That is hell. Let me say this. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. The Bible is explicit about that. It says so in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. God desires that none would perish, but all would come to the knowledge of salvation and everlasting life. Hell wasn't made for humanity. It was made for Satan and the demons. But if you reject Jesus Christ, then by default, you are following Satan. And if you reject Jesus Christ to your death or his coming, you will follow Satan into hell. And the Bible does not depict hell as a party and Satan is the MC. It is weeping, gnashing of teeth, outer darkness, a worm that consumes the flesh that never dies. Don't reject the love of God. What more could he do but come and get you? That's exactly what he did in the incarnation. God draped himself in humanity and came to where we were and lived among us and was spit upon, beard ripped from his face, beaten, mocked, scourged, despised, nailed to the cross, died a horrific death in my place, in your place, and rose from the dead that we might have life, the debt having been paid in his death. He did it for love. He didn't have to do it. No one made him do it. Your sin didn't obligate him to it. He did it because God loves you and he wants you to be forgiven and he wants you to have eternal life. Don't reject it. Don't reject it. This life is but a vapor. We're not guaranteed tomorrow and we don't know when Jesus Christ is coming back. Today's the day to make your decision. Today is the day to make your decision. Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty three. 23, 
Who, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. In the New Living Translation, it says it like this. Anyone who isn't with me opposes me. And anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. As I said earlier, some of you would like to be spiritual Switzerland. In the middle, neutral, leave us alone, let us be, we're just okay. But that's not the truth. Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. You're either working with me on my team or you're working against me. And the day you die or the day the Lord comes, you don't want to be found on the wrong team. He loves you. There's an invitation to his team today. But you've got to be willing to repent of your sins. You're proud. You're proud in thinking that you're not a sinner and that you're better than other people. You're wrong. You're a sinner. You hurt yourself, you hurt others, and you hurt God. And you need to repent. You need to realize that God has been right all this time and you've been wrong all this time. The Bible proves it. It is the absolute sure word of God. And just as sure as the fact that God loves you. And though your sin must be judged, he gave his boy. He gave his son to die in your place. Don't reject that. Don't neglect that. If you're here today and you've never repented of your sins, you do it. Here's what it means. In your own heart, speaking to God, you say, God, I'm sorry. I confess that I'm a sinner. I realize that I've been wrong. And now I realize that you're a savior and a willing savior and that you love me and I don't really understand it all, but you paid my price. I want that. I want that forgiveness. God, forgive me. I know I need you to forgive me. Forgive me. God will do that. God will do that. And it's a wonderful thing. When you are forgiven and the guilt, the burden, the weight, the shame, the dirtiness of sin, the condemnation and the eternal consequences are removed, can I get a witness of how good that feels? It's a good thing. Don't reject it today. So if you want to pray that prayer, I'll lead you in it right now. You can just pray it in the quietness of your heart. And hundreds will say yes and amen as you do. Pray this, Lord, I'm a sinner. I know I'm wrong. But you're right and you're a savior. I realize that. And though I don't understand everything, I ask you, Jesus, to forgive me. I want what I'm hearing about today. I want to escape judgment. I want to be given abundant life, new life, free life, full and satisfying life. And so Jesus, whatever it means, forgive me and save me. Be my Lord and my Savior and my King. Wash me, cleanse me, teach me to follow you and to live for you. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, Jesus said this, any time that a sinner repents of sin, the angels in heaven rejoice, and it's way louder than this. Yeah.